This podcast is for information and entertainment purposes only. Nothing on this podcast should be construed as financial advice. All views expressed on this podcast are solely the opinions of the host and or any guests that we might have from time to time. Nothing on this podcast should be construed as a specific inducement to make a particular investment or to follow a particular investing strategy. Hello, you sexy sat stackers, and welcome to the latest episode of the Bitcoin Bulletin Podcast. I am Chris, and today is Wednesday, February 21st, 2024. Of course, that means it's DCA Wednesday, but this is also episode 150 of the Bitcoin Bulletin Podcast. Yay! I mean, 150 isn't a gigantic milestone, but it's kind of one of those magic numbers, as was, you know, episode 100. So, um... It's really cool that we've been doing this for more than two and a half years. In general, once a week, every once in a while, we've thrown a few extra episodes in there, a weekend update or an emergency update based on, you know, something specific happened. But in general, you know, 150 episodes represents almost 150 weeks. Uh, In fact, this is going to be DCA Wednesday stack 135. So we've been doing weekly DCA Wednesday episodes 135 weeks now. And... We have a lot to talk about. Now, I'm going to try and keep this a short but sweet episode because I have, uh, I've been really busy and I actually have a lot of things to do. I got stuck in an Ikea doom loop yesterday, which was kind of a funny story. Uh, but let's get, thing, let's get this thing underway. Let's get that ball rolling. Of course, the traditional finance world was waiting with bated breath for the notes from a meeting of central bankers that occurred almost a month ago to be released today before they could decide what they would do with their fiat. The markets in general were down until the the, uh, notes were released. And Bitcoin bearers are trying to spin the current price action as vindicating their bearish predictions that they've been clinging to for almost an entire year now. And of course, fake Toshi continues to get absolutely disassembled or at least outclassed in a British courtroom during the COPA trial. That and a lot more. But first, let's take a look at those vital statistics. At the time of the recording, at the time of this recording, right now, as I sit here staring at this microphone and my laptop, we are sitting at a block height of 831,463, and Bitcoin is clocking in at a U.S. dollar value of 51,870. A lot of you are out there on Twitter land, X land, whatever you want to call it, uh, saying that this is a correction, that we failed to break 53, that this is proof that there's a huge retracement coming. And we'll get into that in a little bit, but I do want to remind you that uh, last week, yeah, last week, Bitcoin is worth about $400 more than it is right now. Of course, the week before that, Bitcoin is only at 44000 the week before that, 43000 the week before that, 39000 So zooming out, this isn't exactly a correction, um, but of course, none of us has a crystal ball. Maybe there will be a correction. Maybe there won't. There have been plenty of corrections, even during the bull runs, big ones, no less. If you look at any of the charts at all, if you look at the overall chart, the all-time chart, some of them are visible. But if you zoom in a little more closely and you look at just a particular four-year cycle at a time, you can see it's not just all up and to the right. There's some jagged little retracements, you know, zigzag all the way to the top. So, uh, you know, that's another thing that 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 uh, it's just one of those human nature things. At some point in time, not necessarily on mass, but you know, we get to the point where. People are going to hit their magic number and, and or they're going to chicken out and think that, you know, like Dave Portnoy did and bail thinking this is it. It can't get any higher. Kind of the same way all those people that that sold at one thousand dollars or two hundred dollars thinking this is as high as Bitcoin's ever going to go. Dumped all their Bitcoin. The people that used to have thousands of Bitcoin 
that sold at five dollars or twenty dollars, thinking that that was that was a huge gain for them. Uh, you know, people do funny things. So there are pullbacks even during the peak of the bull market, even when we're nearing the all-time high. Uh, you know, you'd be like in, if you look at back to 2017, as we were approaching twenty thousand or nineteen thousand, depending on where you get your data. Uh, it 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 retraced every several days before we finally hit that that blow off top. And same with the 2021 all-time high. Uh, well, 2021 was a weird animal all the way together because remember we had a double top in the spring. Bitcoin got all the way to 60, uh, 60,000, 66,000, I believe it was. And then it dropped back all the way down into the 30s uh, before it, it set its ultimate all-time high of 69,000 in the fall of 2021. So nothing in life is smooth. There are ups and downs. And when people are gambling and there's people out there that are just getting their toes wet, people that aren't really, really aren't, they haven't done that 100 hours of research yet. They're not all in on Bitcoin. Uh, they're new to Bitcoin, or they're just not even Bitcoiners at all, but they, this is just their latest speculative asset for them. Some of them are going to sell. And of course, there's other reasons that price retraces as well, too. For example, you know, when the entire market went down uh, today and well, the last couple of days, anticipating what the Federal Reserve might do, that really had nothing to do with the actual value of the companies whose stock was being traded uh, at the moment anyway, maybe in the future. And that's what you know, trading really is, is speculating on what the future price will be. Of an of a of an asset of a commodity or of a, of a, of a uh, an equity, because you know that's why stocks are worth multiples of their price to earnings ratio. And this isn't a financial podcast as far as TradFi goes, and I'm getting way off base. I need to get back to the vital statistics again. Bitcoin's currently valued at about fifty one thousand eight hundred and seventy dollars, and that means that one filthy U.S. dollar will get you one thousand nine hundred and twenty eight sats. And that is about 13 sats more than last week. So um, that's good news. The more sats we get per dollar, the better. I mean, imagine if Bitcoin hits $100 million one day and that puts a sat on a, a sat dollar parity where every Satoshi is worth a dollar. Uh, you'll get an extra $13 equivalent of Bitcoin today over last week. But 13 sats is a pretty small number. And that, that shows you that while some people out there preaching doom and gloom, uh, we're only 13 sats per dollar off of where we were last week. So it's all about perspective. And of course, as I remind everybody weekly, zoom out because that changes the view. You know, looking down from the Concorde at 60,000 feet or 50,000 feet, uh, you get a much better view, a much wider view, a much better perspective of the earth than you do standing in a cornfield in Nebraska where you can you know, only see maybe a couple miles. The current block height puts us just 8,537 blocks away from the next halving. TikTok next block, that is coming up fast. It is sneaking up behind you like a big dog with a wet nose. For those of you who don't know, the reward that miners receive for finding a new block is cut in half every 210,000 blocks. That works out to about four years. Uh, however, as we have mentioned repeatedly, that that's based on a, a block time, an average block time of of 10 minutes and and we've rarely seen a 10 minute block time because while bitcoin core while the bitcoin code aims for 10 minute blocks it's a lot like flipping a coin and so they're going to come in when they're going to come in and of course the difficulty adjustment does its best to keep it at 10 minute blocks but as more hash rate gets added to the network you know it, it's almost it's almost like fighting a losing battle i mean it isn't fighting a losing battle but that time frame is slips earlier and earlier and uh, as a result, it's currently looking like that having is going to occur on April 19th. That is now less than two months away. But the one thing that is sure is it's 8,537 blocks away, and it will occur exactly 
at block 840,000, regardless of when that occurs. You know, mining hash power could come off and that could slip back to April 20th or April 24th or who knows? We're not going to know when the halving is going to occur to when the halving is going to occur, but we do know it is going to occur. And, you know, months ago I was talking about how we were heading into the fall. We were going to have the Thanksgiving celebration here in the United States. And then we were going to have Christmas. Then we were going to have New Year's. Then we were going to have Valentine's Day. Then we were going to have the halving. We've had all of those. Just like the halving, they come every year. And, you know, when they come when they, they, they those holidays come once a year. But, you know, of course, the halving is going to come uh and it's going to be over sooner than, you know, before you know it. I mean, we're, we're, we're talking maybe, you know, maybe eight Bitcoin bulletin podcasts away at the most. But uh, time flies. That's all I have to say. And if you're not prepared for the having, uh, it's if you've never been through a having before, it is certainly a lot of fun. It's kind of like New Year's, more like probably Chinese New Year's as far as a festival concerned is concerned. Uh, I. There are parties planned all over the world. It used to be there were big parties planned in big international centers all over the world. Um, and then, of course, the, the last having happened in 2020, like May of 2020. So you know what the world was like in May of 2020. So all those, all those uh, having parties became virtual having parties. They were online. Some of that is scheduled to occur again. I think Bitcoin Magazine or BM Magazine, if you prefer by the other meaning of BM, based on the garbage that they've been responsible for recently, uh, is going to have another online having party or have li- having event, but there's also going to be a huge having party in El Salvador. I know of other having parties in major cities around the world, and there's probably having city having parties even in the small places wherever more than two Bitcoiners get together in a room. Uh, you can have a having party, and it, it is it is a lot of fun. But more importantly, it kicks off the beginning, the traditional beginning of the next four year cycle in Bitcoin, that price cycle where about six months to a year after the having, Bitcoin eclipses, it retakes its previous all time high, and then goes on to, to set whatever its new ultimate all-time high is going to be before retracing a bit. And then we end up with that accumulation phase that we just climbed out of about a year ago. And, uh, and this year is a little, bit, a little bit different. It seems like the, the bear market kicked off a little bit earlier. It is not unusual to have a big retracement either right before the halving or right after the halving. Uh, sometimes people that don't really understand Bitcoin, as soon as the halving happens, they say, see, Bitcoin didn't go to a million dollars. It was a bust. And it triggers maybe a little bit of a sell the news event. Uh, that probably won't happen this year because there are a lot of extra factors at play. But again, nobody has a crystal ball. I don't really know. But what I can promise you is that if history repeats or at least rhymes, buckle up, buttercup, because it's going to get exciting a couple of months after that having occurs, if not sooner. Bitcoin's current price gives it a market capitalization of $1.02 trillion, exactly the same as last DCA Wednesday. But of course, last DCA Wednesday was the first time Bitcoin had crossed that $1 trillion mark, at least you know during this portion of the cycle. Bitcoin was worth more than $1 trillion at a market cap of more than $1 trillion, obviously, when it was in the previous bull run. But it hadn't retaken that $1 trillion mark for years. And I've always said, people like magic numbers, people like round numbers. trillion dollars is kind of that magic number where where the financial media and the traditional financial world will perk up and pay more a little a little bit more attention to Bitcoin. Some of that thunder got stolen by the ETFs because that's been attracting a lot of attention, but it's all good for Bitcoin. Uh, And you know, I'd be more than happy to see the cycle kick off earlier than it normally would. With the minor exception, it means when that price does go up, uh, you're going to be able to acquire fewer satoshis for your fiat. 
For those of you who value your wealth in shiny yellow rocks, it will currently cost you 25.5 ounces of gold to purchase just one Bitcoin. That is a little bit cheaper in gold terms than it was last week when it would have cost you 25.7 ounces of gold. But this is definitely one of those zoom out things. This is this is not one of those, okay, well, it's going to be 25.5 and 26 tomorrow. And, and uh, this is a statistic that I recite mainly so that we can go back in, you know, in retrospect and look and say, remember the days when 25 or 26 ounces of Bitcoin of gold could purchase you one Bitcoin? Look what it is now. I firmly believe by the end of this year, probably sooner at this rate, we're going to be talking about pounds of gold to purchase just one Bitcoin. Nonetheless, everybody gets Bitcoin at the price they deserve. It is great to see, you know, OG gold bugs like Lawrence Lepard, Larry Lepard, uh, etc., become also Bitcoiners and say things like Bitcoin being the fastest horse in the race, that Bitcoin is the better gold. Uh, but then, of course, we all know the Peter Schiffs of the world who are clinging to their little rocks, their little yellow coins, uh, and, you know, hating on Bitcoin almost, almost in a way that's uh, funny, maybe not the word I'm looking for, but uh, inexplicable, uh, unnatural, bizarre. Maybe there's reasons for that. We've we've speculated about Peter Schiff in particular many times, and, and we don't need to go there. The point being, if you're not off zero, if you haven't at least gotten a little bit of Bitcoin in your self-custody, uh, you know, you get Bitcoin at the price you deserve, and that's getting more expensive, especially for you gold bugs. For those of you who value your wealth in pizza, one Bitcoin will currently purchase you 2,901 large pepperoni pizzas from Papa John's. That is one pizza every day for more than eight years. That is a heck of a lot of pizza. And just like the Bitcoin number goes up, Bitcoin pizza number go up as well. Uh, and again, there's a little bit of ebb and flow of the number of pizzas you can get per Bitcoin as Bitcoin you know, has swings in its price, even by the hourly you know, metric, let alone by the weekly metric. In general, though, it's been up and to the right. For example, I mean, if you look back just to August, of this year, one Bitcoin would have only purchased you 1,600 pizzas. So that is a significant increase in the number of pizzas. As I mentioned last, last week, by the time you would have exhausted that eight years worth of pizza, we would have been through two additional halvings. And, uh, and obviously, we expect the price of Bitcoin to be a lot higher in fiat terms and in pizza terms by then. So you may very well get to the point where you never spend your last Satoshis on pizza uh, because the, the value of those Satoshis is going to keep going up faster than you can eat that pizza. Looking at the mempool, of course, Clark Moody's mempool on Clark Moody's dashboard has become a little controversial with some Bitcoin influencers or some Bitcoin podcasters because his mempool is set to the default 300 megabytes. Currently, he's showing 86 blocks for the transactions in his mempool, down from 91 blocks last week and 104 blocks the week before that. Of course, you know, you can look at that one of two ways. You can say he needs to increase the size of the mempool, or you can say that, you know, he's filtering out a lot of the spam transactions and a lot of the, the no priority traction transactions, because if their fee is under a certain threshold, they get filtered out of this mempool. It's only the, only the really priority transactions remain in the mempool. So at least look at it that way, that there's 86 blocks worth of reasonable priority transactions pending in, in Clark Moody's mempool. Of course, mempool.space always tells a slightly different story, but sticking with Clark Moody, his fee estimator is saying that if you do have a priority transaction that needs to be included on-chain, that a fee of just 25 sats per V-byte is enough to guarantee that you'll be in the next block or two. 
That is down significantly from last week when the fee estimator said it would take 44 sats per V-byte to be in the next block or two, or the week before that, two weeks ago, the fee estimator was recommending a fee of 101 sats per V-byte to be in the next block or two. Clark Moody's fee estimator is also saying that a fee of just 11 sats per V-byte will be mined within a day, and that's also their lowest fee if you have even up to a week to wait. They're also recommending a fee of 11 sats per V-byte, probably because a lot of the fees lower than that are getting purged from a lot of the mempools. Mempool.space's fee estimator is recommending a fee of just 15 sats per V-byte for a high-priority transaction. That works out to just $1.09 US at the current price of Bitcoin. That's not too shabby for an uncensorable, immutable transaction that you can send to anyone anywhere in the world and have confirmed in just 10 minutes, irreversibly within maybe 30 minutes. Uh, irreversibly almost immediately in theory unless you know occasionally we have orphan blocks two blocks found at the same time etc there are reasons why you want to wait more than one block to consider a transaction you know immutable permanent you know un unchangeable unrewritable uh, and that doesn't mean that your your transaction might get scammed or might go away it just means it would be mined in a different block later uh, before it becomes confirmed enough times that it's that it's uncensorable Either way, a low priority, a medium priority, and a no priority transaction, they're recommending a fee of 14 sats per V-byte, so just one sat per V-byte cheaper for those medium and low priorities, or 10 sats per V-byte for a no priority transaction. And if you're out there thinking that you need to consolidate your UTXOs, uh, 10 sats per V-byte, even 14 sats per V-byte, right now at the current price of Bitcoin, the, the difference between one sat per V-byte and 10 sats per V-byte, while it is 10x in sats, it's negligible in, in terms of pennies. It's still going to cost you significantly less than a dollar to consolidate those UTXOs. <clears throat> and one of the reasons you might want to do so is because as the price of Bitcoin goes up, as uh, we get into that, as we get into the halving, as we get into the euphoria phase, it's likely that transaction volume will go up. And when transaction volume goes up, usually fees go up, even without an attack on Bitcoin where people are spamming the network, you know, fees go up when transaction, uh, when the number of transactions go up. In general, you know, it's a free market, a free market fee market. And so it, I, I listened to a podcast last week where they explained that even a UTXO of just 100,000 sats uh, may become unspendable at the peak of the market. Uh, and, and so if you have a lot of sats, a lot of low sat UTXOs where you've been DCAing, if you've been DCAing like 10 or $20 a week and not waiting till you have you know, more Bitcoin on the exchange before you move it to your hardware wallet and you have a lot of 20 or 30 or 40,000 sat UTXOs, you probably want to consolidate those. I have previously recommended that you should wait until you're a, a closer to a million sats before you, you know, send it to your hardware wallet because a million sats, it's hard to see, you know, that ever becoming dust. Uh, and maybe it will one day. And if it does, then then you can reassess and and uh, and consolidate then as well. But Right now with sats, with uh, transactions as cheap as possibly 10 sats per V-byte, if you are looking to consolidate, uh, now might be your last chance to do so. At least your last chance until the next crypto winter, if one comes, when you would expect to see fees, you know, back off again. For example, during the 2017, like November, December timeframe of 2017, as we were heading into that all-time high for that cycle, uh, at one point in time, I wanted to move. Bitcoin, I don't remember if it was in November, late November, or early December, but it was before the all-time high. And I, I tried to send some Satoshis to a different address and it was wanting a fee of like $50 to move those sats. And at the time, Bitcoin was in the teens. 
So maybe a third of what the current price is. So it would be the equivalent of $150 today. Of course, we didn't have SegWit yet at the time or Taproot, which makes transactions cheaper, but you get my point. That metric that you know has been my favorite from most of this podcast, Bitcoin's 24-hour average transaction rate uh, is looking a little healthier than last week. Uh, There are currently 4.4 transactions per second on average on-chain. That's up from 3.63 last week, but still down significantly from the 5.01 and the 5.9 transactions per second two and three weeks ago. As you're aware, uh, at least for the history of this podcast, every time that transaction volume has been trending down, price has been trending down as well. When transactions have been trending up, that was usually indicative of price going up. Right now, prices Transaction rate is up a little bit from last week, but but really basically kind of anemic, and we're really seeing the price of Bitcoin going sideways. Uh, so that logic still applies, even though that's not any official TA. That's just something. I mean, it's really anecdotal. It's just something I've noticed in the two plus years that we've been doing this podcast, and I've been reading statistics. It's just something I've noticed. It's n- nothing official, nothing scientific. Speaking of on-chain activity and mining. Uh, Since the last DCA Wednesday episode, the difficulty was adjusted significantly upwards. In fact, it got 8.2% harder to mine a block of Bitcoin, and that is on the heels of a 7.3% difficulty adjustment on February 3rd, you know, two weeks before that. As we've mentioned, even in this episode, the difficulty it takes to find or to mine the next block is adjusted every 2016 blocks, which is theoretically every two weeks, but more importantly, it's every 2016 blocks with the goal of finding, on average, one block every 10 minutes. If blocks are coming in faster than 10 minutes on average during that 2016 blocks, the difficulty is increased to slow it down. If they're coming in slower, the difficulty is is backed off a little bit to try and speed those blocks up. Right now, we are about one, we are exactly 1,145 blocks away from that next mining difficulty adjustment, so that's a little more than eight days from now, uh, on about February 29th. And it looks like they're going to give up some of that difficulty. Maybe we overshot a tiny bit with that 8.2%, especially on the heels of a 7.3% difficulty increase. Because depending where you are getting where you're getting your data, we're going to have a decrease of anywhere between 3.85 to 5.1%. Of course, we still have more than a week to go. Anything can happen. And we'll also just get a better idea what the average is. Because again, mining a block is a lot like flipping a coin. Uh, you can get a block that takes one minute or two blocks that come in almost simultaneously. And then there've been times when you have blocks that can take an hour or longer, you know, it's just an average, but on average they should come in every 10 minutes. And that's why they wait 2016 blocks. Uh, why Satoshi programmed 2016 blocks is that interval because, you know, if, if you, if that interval had been too short, you'll see salt all over the place trying to find, you know, trying to find a harmony and uh, it's a lot like an autopilot in an airplane. You know, the older autopilots, they would try and track a straight line through the sky and, you know, they would drift a little bit to the right and then they would seesaw back to the left, but then they would overshoot the airway and then they'd have to come back to the right again. And then they would overshoot and they'd have to come back to the left. And a lot of the older pilots would just kind of make little tiny S turns all the way through the sky while they were while they should be flying straight. Of course, that's a waste of fuel and it slows you down. It takes longer to get where you're going because you're actually flying a longer distance. Uh, and... That's how Bitcoin would be if that difficulty adjustment was more frequently than every 2016 blocks. Of course, the more data you get, the more valid that average is going to be. The more data you have, the more reliable that average is going to be. And so um, 
in general, it's it's a, it's it's pretty good. It's a, it's a pretty good compromise as opposed to taking too long, where if you end up, you know, needing a big difficulty adjustment, and it and it would be double that, you know, four thousand thirty two blocks or whatever. You know, that could lead that could lead to to difficulties such as the dreaded minor death spiral, where you know, uh, hash rate continues to fall off and and you never reach the next difficulty adjustment. We've debunked the minor death spiral many a time. I'm just uh, using that argument, that FUD argument, to illustrate why 2016 blocks is a really good compromise uh, for the interval, the epic, in between difficulty adjustments. So we shall see. By next week, we'll only be you know a day or so away from the next difficulty adjustment, and we'll have a much better idea. It's really cold in a lot of the country right now. It's even cold here in Florida. I'm wearing a jacket again in the studio because as I've complained about numerous times, I have air conditioning in the studio. But because we're basically across the street from the beach in central Florida, uh, we don't have heaters in the studio. So I'm wearing a jacket. I am wearing shorts, though. So shorts and sandals, just a jacket to keep me a little warm. Uh, And it's not too bad in here right now to eat, too, because maybe my body heat has helped. But I also turned on all the studio lights. And this is not a video podcast. This is audio only right now. But I kicked on all the studio lights because they're bright and they actually heat things up a bit. The point being, it's even cold here in Florida right now. And when it's cold or really hot, you know, we see the miners shutting off because the demand for electricity, uh, you know, makes it unprofitable for them to mine, et cetera. We got into that a little bit last week. I don't need to dive into that again today. But uh, that may be one of the reasons why we're looking at a negative difficulty adjustment in about a week. And that might, that might actually completely go away and even end up being a positive difficulty adjustment, depending on those factors. You know, if miners are offline right now and they come back on with a vengeance, you know, we we're not going to know until we know. And only halfway through the difficulty epic is often, we often get an unreliable picture of whether it's going to be an increase or decrease. Certainly with 1,145 blocks to go, uh, we'll have to wait and see. And in general, if you're not a miner, you really don't care because you know, if you're making even a priority on-chain transaction, the difference between 9 minutes and 30 seconds versus 10 minutes or 10 minutes and 30 seconds versus 10 minutes is really negligible, especially since we're just talking averages. If you could make your on-chain transaction and it could get confirmed in a minute or it could take nine minutes or it could take an hour, you know, it, it, it just is what it is. So if you're not a miner and it's not affecting your profitability, then the difficulty adjustment is is really something you don't need to pay a whole lot of attention to other than the fact that indicates just how healthy the mining network is. And that provides Bitcoin security, Bitcoin's immutability. It's the hash rate that makes Bitcoin unattackable because because you would have to match that hash rate and then some have more than the current hash rate to, to attack Bitcoin's network. And based on the amount of electricity and computing power that the Bitcoin network has right now, uh, that's a pretty tall order. And, you know, it was a tall order four years ago. It was a tall order 10 years ago. Bitcoin's never been hacked. You know, the network, the code itself has never been hacked, knock on wood. And uh, and as hash rate has increased, it's even gotten stronger. And so that's the biggest reason to worry about the, you know, the mining difficulty, unless you're a miner. And currently, speaking of difficulty, blocks are averaging. I said 10 minutes and 30 seconds. I was just kind of pulling that number out of thin air for a hypothetical but blocks are currently averaging 10 minutes and 32 seconds. And that is why we're looking, you know, at that 3.8 to 5.1% difficulty decrease to try and speed those blocks up, get them coming in a little bit closer or exactly at 10 minutes, ideally. All right, before we go on to the news of the day, I want to take a moment to thank those of you 
who are listening on your favorite Podcasting 2.0 app. But in general, I just want to thank those of you who are listening. Podcasting 2.0 is a fantastic way that you can help support your favorite podcasts. Uh, they have the value for value model where you can stream sats on a per minute basis. You know, if you feel like you're getting one sat per minute worth of value out of a podcast, you can set you can set it and forget it. Where while you're listening, the podcast will receive a satoshi per minute, or five satoshis, or ten satoshis, or twenty satoshis per minute. Whatever you feel uh, that podcast is worth to you, or you can do a one time boost, which is where you send some sats to your favorite podcast, and it's a lightning transaction that. Uh, that allows you to send a message, so like a shout out. We are also sending some sats, uh, and we do have a shout out, a boost to read this week. Well, actually, we don't have a boost to read. Leggy boosted the podcast 100 sats, but as far as I can see, has not sent a message. It's not the first time they've done that, so I'm assuming I'm not just not seeing the message. I went and looked several ways. I looked at my podcast's wallet, and it shows the transaction with no message. And then I looked at the show notes because shout outs. Boosts are appended to the show notes in Fountain, for example. So if you pull up the last episode and look at activity, it would show the boost if there was a message. And there's no message showing up, at least not on my phone or on my laptop. So thank you for the 100 sats, Leggy. Once again, Leggy's been a longtime supporter of the podcast. And it's more than just the, it's more than just the Satoshis. I mean, well, Leggy's, Leggy's helped the podcast out in numerous ways. Leggy's the reason that I know that Morgan is a customary greeting in Luxembourgish which is one of the many languages spoken in Luxembourg that I was not aware of. Um, but I just like to know that you're out there listening and that, uh, and, and that you either like the podcast or, or, or you have things that you don't like about the podcast. And you can reach out and contact me in, in ways other than sending a boost. The financial support is neat. It's very nice. I appreciate each and every sat that you all have sent to me. But um, you can also DM me on, on Twitter. On Twitter, we are at BTC Bulletin Pod at BTC Bulletin Pod, like Bitcoin Bulletin Pod. And if you're not on Twitter or X, you know, we're also on Noster, but you can also send me an email. My email address for the podcast is bitcoinbulletin at protonmail.com, bitcoinbulletin at protonmail.com, because I know you are out there all over the world listening right now, and uh, I know that because I can see the statistics. You get pretty good statistics from Spotify, who hosts our podcast now. I, I started out with Anchor. Anchor got purchased by Spotify and was Anchor by Spotify. And now it's just Spotify for podcasters. Uh, and one thing that they're really good at, like most big tech, is collecting data on their listeners. And so I can, I can, I can, I know a little bit about each and every one of you and where you're at based on that data, but nothing like a boost, a shout out, or a DM or an email saying hi and letting me know what you think about the podcast, because uh, that's really why I do this is to help. Help Orange Pill new plebs that are first-time listeners or maybe someone that you that you introduced to the podcast to help Orange Pill them. But also, one of the reasons I started this podcast was because, uh, you know, I used to listen to a lot of the OGs like, you know, Andreas Antonopoulos and, and Adam Meister, who's at Tech Vault on Twitter. And I've mentioned Tech Vault numerous times. He used to do a daily show called The One Bitcoin Show. And maybe you'll get a show every week or two out of him now because he's kind of backed off quite a bit. And sometimes he, he didn't really say anything new. He has the certain things he'd repeat all the time. But more importantly, it was almost like a daily affirmation session. It, it reminds you why you're here because it's easy to get lost in the news or the, the fear or the FOMO, you know, or um, distracted by the price action or just by life that has nothing to do with Bitcoin and, and kind of lose track of why you got into Bitcoin in the first place? 
And for me, Adam Meister and, and Andrea Santanopoulos and others were that source. Uh, and some of those podcasts have come and gone. Andreas isn't out there a whole lot anymore. Adam Meister's only out there every couple of weeks now. So I wanted to be that source for some of you that, that helped, even if I'm not telling you anything you don't know or anything new, uh, that it's just a reminder, something, something to, 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 to help keep those hands strong, to remind you why you're here, why we're all Bitcoiners. So thank you to each and every one of you who are listening. And thank you, Leggy, for that boost. Speaking of you and where you're at, our geographic distribution of listeners has remained unchanged. It's been ossified since January 10th. The top 10 countries by listenership remain. Number one, the United States, where more than half of you are listening from. So thank you to all my fellow Americans out there listening. Number two remains Argentina, which I feel particularly gratified by because Argentina is one of those countries that, um, that needed Bitcoin more than we need it here in the United States, at least at the moment. Number three, so muchas gracias amigos in Argentina. Number three remains Germany. So, uh, Dankeschön, mein Freunds in Deutschland. And it's really cool to have so many Germans listening because I've always said German Bitcoiners have the most fun. You know, just seeing what goes on on Twitter or Noster uh, or listening to the podcast and finding out about the German meetups, Einundsvansig uh, sort of activities. German Bitcoiners just seem like a blast. And it's it's one of my bucket list items to get to a German Bitcoin meetup sooner rather than later. So thank you to those of you listening in Germany. Dankeschön, mein Freunds. Number four remains Luxembourg. So again, Dankeschön, mein Freunds in Luxembourg, or Morian, as Leggy taught us to say. Number five remains Canada. So hello to those of you in the frozen white north. Uh, if it's this cool that I'm wearing a jacket on the beach in Florida, I can only imagine how chilly it probably is where you're listening. Number six remains Spain. So muchos gracias, amigos, in Spain. Number seven remains Colombia. Again, muchos gracias, amigos, in Colombia. It is very flattering that we, again, have so many speakers and listeners in countries where Bitcoin can make more of a difference, where Bitcoin is more important to you uh, than it is to a lot of Americans who, who just treat it as a stock or any other investment. Number eight is Sweden, as usual. I mean, it's the same as the last several weeks, but this is what's different. I'm going to hopefully not butcher this because nobody's reached out to tell me how to say hey or thank you, hello or thank you in Swedish, so... Uh, I had to do some research myself, so I want to say, hey, taxa, taxa meke, taxa meke, taxa meke. Uh, hopefully I didn't butcher that too bad. I learned hey, H-E-G, by going to Ikea, because they have it plastered right at the beginning, hey means hello in Swedish, and I had to look up the taxa machete, taxa meke, I, I had this down pat, I actually sat in front of the mirror and rehearsed taxa meke in, um, in Swedish before I carried my laptop out to the studio and sat down to record. Maybe it's the cold, or maybe it's the fact that um, Swedish is is new to me. Um, but either way, thank you to those of you listening in Sweden. Number nine remains the United Kingdom. So again, thank you to our friends across the pond in the United Kingdom. And number 10 remains Venezuela, yet another country where Bitcoin is more important than it is here in the United States. And so that is flattering. So muchas gracias, amigos, in Venezuela. All right, on to the news. As I mentioned in the intro, the Fed released the minutes of their January 21st meeting today. And pretty much, I don't know if they were expecting the Fed to indicate that they were going to raise rates or, or not cut rates uh, because all of the markets were down across the board in anticipation of the Fed minutes coming out. And then, of course, the minutes came out and then all the markets, for the most part, recovered. The S&P 500 is up. The Dow is up. The NASDAQ is down a tiny bit. Um, 
but gold and, and crude, all of that recovered after the Fed minutes. Yahoo Finance read the headline, Fed officials worried about the risks of moving too quickly on rate cuts minutes. The article says most Federal Reserve officials cautioned against cutting rates too quickly at their last policy meeting as they continue to look for convincing evidence that inflation is returning to their 2% target, according to the minutes from the January 31st discussion released Wednesday. So I don't really care whether they cut interest rates in March or whether they cut interest rates in June or whether they hold interest rates exactly where they are. That has nothing to do with why I value Bitcoin. Um, but a lot of people in the TradFi world are just absolutely obsessed with the Federal Reserve. You know, they have sayings like, you know, never try and... Uh, <laughs> I'm spacing here. I'm having a senior moment. I'm not even a boomer. Uh, basically, that never bet against the Fed because the Fed does have such huge sway over traditional markets. Obviously, they should have a, they have a, a higher than normal influence on things like bonds or you know, mortgage rates because they set the they set the the benchmark interest rate that that affects how cheaply banks can purchase you know banks can can get the money that they loan to you, etc. Uh, but you know, and 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 it and it does have a little bit to do with uh, with how the economy performs when 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 rates are zero or in like Europe when rates were negative interest rates as far as you know, free money or cheap money, encouraging malinvestment or bad investment, and that can affect the economy. But in general, it doesn't affect the fundamentals of Bitcoin. The reason why we're here, the fact that Bitcoin is our escape hatch from the TradFi system, you know, basically screw the TradFi system and the Fed and what they think. You know, we have Bitcoin. One day we're moving towards hyper-Bitcoinization where none of this will, work, will matter at all. Interest rates don't affect Bitcoin because Bitcoin is going to be ultimately a, uh, not a, a non-inflationary currency with the halving coming up. The Bitcoin's inflation rate is going to duck to like a half a percent. Uh, it's going to be more scarce than gold. It continues to be the scarcest asset ever. You know, one day there will be no new Bitcoin issued. That granted, that's probably long past most of our lifetimes. But uh, when that does happen, you know, Bitcoin will have a zero percent inflationary policy. And then with Bitcoin being lost, etc., or burned, you know, back in the day they had burner wallets where people were destroying Bitcoin just to try and increase its value symbolically. Uh, and then Bitcoin will actually become deflationary. Either way, um, Bitcoin went up today just like everything else did. Bitcoin was down as low as 50,676 earlier this morning. And of course, it's popped quite a bit to where it it's, you know, was hovering just under 52,000 as I was getting ready for this podcast. Nonetheless, the bears have used this to just come out in full force with that I told you so. There's a couple of prominent bears, prominent doomers on Twitter that have been posting for a year now, sometimes two or three times a day, that a Bitcoin crash, a Bitcoin correction is just around the corner. Of course, it hasn't happened. As I've reminded you already, small pullbacks happen even in the most bullish of bull runs in Bitcoin's history. And, you know, of course, if you zoom out, to just the 30-day chart, Bitcoin has been on an impressive tear. I mean, it's up more than 25% in the last 30 days. We started a month ago at about $38,500. So even if Bitcoin retraced to $45,000, which is what some of those doomers are calling for, that is still up gigantically from just $38,500 just 30 days ago. One of the most notorious bears on Twitter, it used to be Mastermind USA. I think he's changed it to Master Bearer. Uh, but he's at Mastermind USA on Twitter. 
posted just 10 hours ago when it was looking like Bitcoin was going down before it recovered more than $1,000, 48K by end of day. Twitter user Tao posted about the same time frame, scared yet? I told you 48K Bitcoin is coming. Tao also uh, posted yesterday, we've tried countless times trying to bake 52K and failed. This is usually an indication that a huge reversal to 45K BTC or lower is coming. Plan accordingly. I think all TA is pretty much BS. Even the 24-hour transaction volume that I like to, to quote, you know, is just anecdotal. Nobody has a freaking crystal ball. It is distinctly possible that there will be a pullback. I've said over and over again that there's pullbacks even in the most excellent bull runs. So if maybe Bitcoin does retrace to 45K. But if it does, these people will only be right because they've posted these predictions every day for the last freaking 365 days. And as they say, even a broken clock is right twice a day. So if you make predictions that Bitcoin will pull back enough times, eventually one of those days it will, even if we're in the middle of the, you know, the most epic bull run that anybody's ever anticipated. Cointelegraph, which I think is no friend to Bitcoin, is also kind of piling on with the FUD when they ran the headline today. BTC price drops to one week low as traders focus on Bitcoin whales and NVIDIA. That is freaking hysterical in and of itself. How much of a moronic bear do you have to be to reset the time frame? I mean, cherry picking data is one thing, but if you have to condense your time frame to just one week to say it's a one week low, Bitcoin's doing so horrible, it hasn't been this low in like the last five days. Pull out, pull your head out, and zoom out if you were at Cointelegraph, because just because Bitcoin. It might be at a one week low, which isn't, you know, I guess it's the case if you look at our, that our data from our Bitcoin uh, bulletin podcast series, our DCA Wednesday series, because it is about $400 cheaper than it was last Wednesday. But uh, I swear some of you will never learn the exact opposite of a bear is Michael Saylor. Michael Saylor was on Bloomberg television yesterday or the day before, I think it was yesterday. And he was asked once again, if he plans to sell any Bitcoin, because they pointed out he's up 70%, he's got $10 billion worth of Bitcoin now, he's been vindicated, so isn't it time to sell, basically? Uh, and he reiterated his quote, I'm going to be buying the top forever, which is not quite as famous as, is it's going up forever, Laura, forever? It's going up forever, Laura, or it's going up forever, Laura, forever? I'm tongue-tied on that quote as well. My point being, Michael Saylor has a lot of famous quotes, and they're all pretty darn bullish. And of course, he added... Bitcoin is the exit strategy. He's not just selling Bitcoin. You know, he doesn't need to exit any of his Bitcoin position. Bitcoin is the exit strategy saying, quote, there is no reason to sell the winner and buy the losers, which is what he'd been doing. Why would you take an asset like Bitcoin that's performing tremendously well and sell it to invest in some other asset or to, to worse yet put in cash, which if the Fed gets their way, still loses 2% of its value every year by design? I mean, besides the fact he is absolutely right, why would anyone contemplate selling at any price going to a halving? We all know what's coming in the next few months. And even if the wildest predictions for the top of the cycle are way off base, you know, even every year we get that, you know, 100K by conference day or Bitcoin's going to hit a million or this is the super cycle. There's never going to be another retracement. There's never going to be another bear market moon boys. Even the worst case scenario prediction uh, even if the best case scenario predictions are are wrong, the worst case scenario predictions are uh, are still pretty favorable. I think 
probably the worst case scenario prediction I've seen for this having, other than the you know the the Peter Schiffs who say Bitcoin's going to zero, uh, that it's Bitcoin's Bitcoin's a pet rock, like Jamie Dimon says. Uh, in general, the worst case scenario predictions, uh, which are based on that diminishing returns theory that I've spoken against numerous times, I think we've thoroughly debunked that here on this podcast. But even that, the diminishing return theory still shows that we should hit an all-time high of $90,000 or so this this cycle. And, you know, that's not quite double where we're at, but let's round it up to double, especially if Bitcoin drops to 45K like these bozos on Twitter are Twitter saying. So in theory, let's say Bitcoin only 2Xs from here. In what world is that a bad investment? In what world is making 40 or 50% return on your investment in one year a tragedy. You know, when is that? Oh my God, Bitcoin's failed. I'm glad I sold at 50 because oh, could you imagine only having 90? Uh, it's just, it's just silly. Getting back to the diminishing returns theory, that's taking the data from three cycles and showing how um, the, the percent, not the, not the dollar value going through the roof, but the, the, the percent returns have gotten smaller and smaller during the last, the last three cycles. And some of the things that are wrong with that is, of course, it relies on too few data points to be reliable. We really only have two solid halvings because the first halving occurred, you know, almost immediately because mining was nascent. The, you know, there were, the, the, there were barely any people running the protocol. And then they all, the, the number of miners exploded. Um, you know, the, the first halving came pretty lickety split. Uh, and, uh, you know, it, and it, and it, it's, it was just too new, too nascent to really be a, a reliable reliable data point. So basically that gives us a two having cycles. The second having cycle was the 2020 having cycle. Not the second having cycle, but the second reliable having cycle. What we would consider reliable uh, having cycle would be the 2020 having cycle. And we all know what happened in 2020. 2020 was anything but a typical year. You know, the entire global economy was locked down. The entire global economy went into Basically, it was, you know, might have only been six months, but it was a de facto recession. It was a repression. If you were locked in your house or in China, welded into your apartment building, not allowed to leave, told you were uh, that you weren't essential, that you weren't allowed to work, you weren't allowed to go to school. Uh, My point being, 2020 was not a typical year. And if you're going to rely on the difference between 2017, you know, 2016 having and the 2020 having to try and come up with some sort of a mean, uh, you know, they say garbage in, garbage out. And 2020 was a bad a bad year because it was, it was a black swan year if, if there ever was a black swan year. And I'm not saying there can't be a black swan this year, but I'm saying that 2020 was not a baseline year to, to, you know, to, to, to make any bets, to make any assumptions based on. And the diminishing returns theory also relies on the assumption that there isn't enough money that can possibly flow into Bitcoin to 10x again, since they like to say going 10x uh, from 3K was a lot easier than going 10x from 69K because 10x to 3 from 3K was only going to 9K, and then going from 69K to 690,000 is an infinitely more amount of, you know amount of money, even though it percentage wise it's the same. Uh, but you know while that might sound like a compelling argument, they're completely discounting the possibility of hyper Bitcoinization because if Bitcoin becomes a global reserve currency, if it becomes just a global treasury asset. You know, or becomes the currency that people use on a daily basis. Any of those things, then, then your assumption of what kind of money can flow into Bitcoin are completely out the window because Bitcoin basically becomes money. Even if Bitcoin only replaces gold, I mean, we have to more than 10x 
just to get there. And that could happen, as I say, gradually, then suddenly. It can happen a lot faster than many people expect. And it doesn't take into account the ever-expanding monetary supply in general and the huge tidal wave that's coming in right now that Wall Street that, that Wall Street finally has easy access to Bitcoin via the ETFs and additional final financial products that are almost certainly coming as TradFi warms up to Bitcoin. You know, the Bitcoin ETFs have been a gigantic success for the companies like BlackRock and Fidelity that launched them. And they're just getting started. The ETFs are only a month old. I mean, we, you ain't seen nothing yet. A lot of money, a lot of funds, pension funds, uh, sovereign wealth funds, retirement plans, et cetera, that, uh, that will possibly be purchasing Bitcoin in the future. You know, they weren't going to jump right into a brand new product. They have rules. They've got due diligence they need to do. And a lot of people estimated it could take up to a year before we really see TradFi start flowing into the Bitcoin ETF. So, man, buckle up because that would coincide with about when we should be expecting to see a new all-time high just based on the 210,000 block theory, the four-year having cycle theory. So there's a lot of reasons why the diminishing returns theory is bupkis, not the least of which uh, is the fact that we just don't have enough data to know yet. Uh, so I guess nobody has a crystal ball. We won't know. I mean, even if, even if we did have good data for two cycles, you know, Bitcoin's going to do what Bitcoin's going to do. None of us have a crystal ball. We won't know whether that, whether that's true or not until, until looking backwards, you know, hindsight is 2020. Okay. We spoke about the bulls now let's, or the bears. Let's now speak about the clowns. I don't want to get too much into this because I'm not a big expert on the legal system in England. But of course, the COPA trial is underway of last week was uh, the cross-examination of fake Toshi. And today, I think we saw Adam back on the stand. And Hoddlenot has been doing a pretty good job of covering uh, what's going on in this trial. But, you know, I love Hoddlenot, but you definitely can't say he's not uh, jaded or biased because, you know, CSW has been suing him in particular, specifically. Uh, so, you know, if, if anyone were to have reason to see CSW fail to, to lose this lawsuit, it would definitely be hot or not. But, um, but we all kind of want to see CSW fail because as they say, everyone is Satoshi except for CSW. Either way, Adam Back, who I think it was Adam Back who surprised uh, a previously unreleased email from Satoshi uh, that conflicted with what CSW had been trying to claim on the stand because he's done a pretty good job of memorizing the sort of things that Satoshi is known to have said in his uh, in his emails and in his uh, in his forum postings, but he doesn't know the things that Satoshi told people like Adam Back, and Adam Back does, and so he he and he hodled an email for more than ten years, and then sprung it on CSW and trial. And of course, he was on the stand today, and the quote that stands out in my mind that Hodl or not uh, posted was, "I find CSW a bit like an Elvis impersonator." I don't find anything he posts authentic. And of course, if you've been following the trial, even cursorily, cursory, even, even, even occasionally, you know that um, CSW is famous for submitting forged documents in the different trials he's been in. And his new story is every document is potentially forged. So if it comes out that a document is forged or that a document uh, goes against his narrative, that's because other people got to his emails and forged his email. So you can't hold it against him. And what other nonsense? Either way, I don't know much about the legal system in England. I'm not 100% up to speed on exactly what the burden of proof is, if the burden of proof is for COPA, or if the burden of proof is for CSW, and if so, what that standard is. I do have a lot of experience in the American court system, and I would have to assume 
uh, that in this case, if COPA is suing CSW, that a good portion of the burden of proof is on them. But I don't know. I've also seen it posted that in English law, uh, since the claim is made by CSW, it's up to him to prove it beyond a shadow of a doubt. I don't know. And regardless of what happens in this trial, the BSBers are going to claim that that you know CSW is is still Satoshi, and that COPA is just a bunch of scammers that are out to get him. And if for some weird reason CSW wins, it really doesn't matter because um, we all know he's not Satoshi, and it doesn't matter anyway because there's not a damn thing he can do about it uh, other than try and intimidate people like Hodlanot and some core devs, which is which is the real reason COPA was even formed. So that's enough about the CSW. Uh, that whole shenanigans will be over by the end of uh, middle of next month, I believe. It was the trial was supposed to be about a month long, and it's uh, it's on its second week. So hopefully we're about halfway done with that, and then maybe the wish that everybody has will come true that uh, he'll lose a humiliating defeat. Of course, the only reason he can be involved in all these lawsuits is because the former fugitive turned billionaire Calvin Ayer is footing the bill, and maybe eventually. You know, if he gets spanked hard enough enough times, he'll just go away. But you, know, you can't really count on a, a psychopath or a sociopath admitting they were wrong. It, it's just not even, their personality-wise, they're not even capable of doing it. We mentioned the ETFs is one of the reasons why this cycle is going to be different, why, um, why maybe we're off to an early bear, bull market, why the bear market, the pullback that people have been forecasting hasn't happened yet. Uh, and speaking of the ETFs, BitMEX Research, which is at BitMEX Research on Twitter, has been doing a good job of keeping a tally on the daily inflows into the ETFs, which are two of the most successful ETFs of all time already, just 20, I think 27 trading days in. And they posted, I guess, last night, because the data for today wasn't isn't in yet, but at the time uh, of this recording, the most recent post is on yesterday's data, so Tuesday's data. All data in solid day with plus 135.6 million of net inflow. Not as strong as last week, but solid. And putting that in Bitcoin terms, uh, there was a net inflow to the spot Bitcoin ETFs of 2,606.2 Sato- uh, two, so two Bitcoin Satoshis. That would be, that'd be a totally different story. Um, and this despite the fact that everybody keeps fleeing grayscale Bitcoin trust like a sinking ship. In fact, 2,632.8 Bitcoin were sold off, flowed out of Grayscale Bitcoin Trust, and we still had a net inflow of six of, of almost the same, 2,606.2 Bitcoin. And that is because 2,966 Bitcoin got soaked up by BlackRock's fund, 1,378.7 Bitcoin got soaked up by Fidelity, even Bitwise soaked up 212 Bitcoin, ARK's fund soaked up 525 Bitcoin. Van X soaked up another 113.3 Bitcoin, and Wisdom Tree soaked up 42.5 Bitcoin. Eventually, the hemorrhaging will stop at Grayscale. The people who want out, the people who are willing to take the capital gains hit, uh, will stop selling. You know, maybe we still have that one one more big bankruptcy liquidation coming at least. But eventually, that goes away. There's only so much Bitcoin that Grayscale can sell. Eventually, they'll probably lower their their fees to be on par with the other ETFs, or the other ETFs will raise their fees because a lot of them just waived their fees for the first six months, and then uh, and then they go up to like a quarter percent, whereas Grayscale is charging like one and a half percent, which is way out of line, which is a big part of the reason why everyone's bailing on GBTC. Either way, eventually that will slow. 
if the bleeding didn't occur, if GBTC didn't exist, we would have been talking a net inflow of you know, more than 5,000 Bitcoin, which is just insane. But even 2,606 Bitcoin is almost three times the daily supply of newly mined Bitcoin. And as you know, the vast majority of the Bitcoin that's for sale on exchanges is Bitcoin that's being sold by large commercial miners. They have no choice but to sell because they have rent, electric, you know, employee, employee uh, salaries, things like that they have to pay. And if their source of income is mining Bitcoin, it's a no-brainer that they have to sell some of that Bitcoin. The average pleb is not selling their Bitcoin. They're stacking. It's going into their cold storage, into their hardware wallets, and it's never coming out again. So eventually, Grayscale will run out of Bitcoin. But even if they don't, even if things just remain the status quo, you can't soak up three times the daily supply of Bitcoin for too long uh, before supply and demand kicks in and the price just goes through the roof. Of course, that's part of the reason why we're already you know, over $50,000 and we haven't even had the halving yet. Of course, when we do have the halving, that's going to be almost six times the daily supply of newly mined Bitcoin. So even if things remain exactly the way they are with hemorrhaging Bitcoin coming out of Grayscale Bitcoin Trust and about the same, about well, about double that amount of Bitcoin flowing into the other spot ETFs, so we get a net inflow of 2,600 Bitcoin a day. When that doubles to, you know, to five times, six times uh, the, the daily supply of newly mined Bitcoin, things are going to get really interesting. You know, the, if, you, if you have to buy Bitcoin and the only thing you can do to lubricate somebody's hands to try and pry that Bitcoin out of it is to increase your offer. And you, and the, you know, it's kind of like the, kind of like the, the GameStop short squeeze, you know, the, the wall street bets shenanigans that went down when they, when they, when they beat, uh, I'm, I'm spacing on the hedge fund. They beat the hedge fund that was trying to short uh, GameStop out of existence and, uh, and drove the price of GameStop through the roof. Uh, that is the same dynamic that will be at play when these ETFs are required to purchase Bitcoin because they've sold shares to new people uh, and and the Bitcoin is just not available for sale. If it's not available for sale at any price, you're going to have to pay whatever whatever I'm willing to part with my Bitcoin at. You know, if the, only the plebs, if, the, if, you ha- if, if you've already mopped up three to six times the amount of Bitcoin that the mining companies are selling, uh, you got to get the rest from somewhere else. And thus, the only other place that Bitcoin is sitting is in your hands. And please don't sell your Bitcoin to Grayscale or BlackRock or Fidelity or BlackRock. So even though today was a heck of a successful day for the Bitcoin ETFs, it is nothing compared to what the previous 26 days of trading have done. In just the first 27 days that these ETFs have been available, we've had a total net inflow of 105,493.6 Bitcoin. And, you know, again, that's 27 trading days because remember, Wall Street only trades 9.30 a.m. to 4 p.m. Monday through Friday and, and, and excluding holidays. And sometimes they take those almost four-day weekends. You know, they're prohibited in the United States by law from being closed more than three days. So, you know, they'll do like a half trading day on Friday and then be closed on Monday. So that basically effectively no trading for, for four days sometimes. Uh, you know, for the average person anyway, there's, you know, after hours trading and all that, yada, yada. But in general, they keep extremely limited bankers hours, even though Bitcoin never sleeps. So while everyone is increasingly focused on price, and it is only natural to get excited by the charts as the having kicks off, you know, the next four-year cycle, it is important to remember why you were a Bitcoiner. And we got into this when I was talking about the boosts a little bit. 
Bitcoin is about opting out. Bitcoin is about freedom. Bitcoin is about hope. Bitcoin is the future of money. Bitcoin is a store of value for people who cannot rely on their fiat currency. And really none of us can rely on a fiat currency. Even if you don't take into account the fact that, you know, that the U.S. dollar, they're stealing at least a minimum of 2% of your value every year as their goal. It's a lot worse right now, obviously. Even if you discount that completely and say that's stable enough for my purposes, you know, the history shows us that fiat currencies eventually fail that they eventually hyperinflate, that they eventually go away, and that they do so in an average lifespan of about 50 years. Well, if you remember that we went off the gold standard in 1971, that 50 years has already happened. So don't get, don't get complacent, because even if you're in the United States and you think the U.S. dollar is solid and safe, it might not be that way forever. Uh, but certainly in other parts of the world where they've been experiencing hyperinflation or where the countries have defaulted on their money more than one time, even in just our lifetimes, uh, Bitcoin is that escape hatch. As Christine Lagarde says, Bitcoin is an escape hatch. They can't force you into debt fiat slavery if the escape hatch is open. And that's why they wanted to close the escape hatch. Those are her words, not mine. But she's right. Bitcoin is that escape hatch. Bitcoin is the lifeboat. But more importantly, Bitcoin is software obsoleting the financial system in the same way the internet has relegated everything that it has come for to obsolescence. You know, Bitcoin completely changed telecommunications. You know, when, when VoIP first came out, uh, the, the phone companies in Congress tried to make it illegal to carry telephone calls over the Internet. And, you know, that failed because it's just it was the way of the future. Uh, and now most of your phone calls, they're not, they're not routed by undersea cables, you know, or analog signals anymore, telegraph lines. You know, the Internet's handling a large portion of that. There's people that only do Internet calls. You know, we're talking to you on the Internet right now. Things that were unimaginable just 20 years ago. Along those lines, it's important to remember, we're still early. We're not even to the America Online or CompuServe days of internet adoption. The internet was around for a really, really long time before we got to where we are now. Uh, you know, it, the internet or ARPANET or its, 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 uh, its, its beginnings took 30 years, really, before it, before it got, you know, any kind of mass adoption. Even the CompuServe America Online days, that maybe, you know, we'll be at the America Online or CompuServe day when you can walk into Wells Fargo or Bank of America and deposit your Bitcoin or buy your Bitcoin, you know, right there. But, you know, the ETFs and, and Wall Street dabbling in Bitcoin and Michael Saylor buying Bitcoin and El Salvador buying Bitcoin, you know, we're basically, we're, we're basically the nerds in college in 1989 or 1990 that were using Kermit uh, to send text, you know, chats back and forth to other other students in college computer labs around the country. You know, you couldn't really even email. Well, the email didn't exist. It, it did in some extent. Like, there were BBSs, bulletin board systems, where you could dial up and connect to a computer, and that computer would host a database of messages and other goodies. But, you know, you'd have to dial in and check your email. And for any email to be there, someone else would have dialed in first and then left a message for you. And then you could dial in and see if you had any messages. Really archaic stuff, but it was early adoption. It was people starting to use the internet for things that evolved into what we have now, kind of. Uh, and, and that's, I think, where we are with Bitcoin right now. Uh, then, like, Netscape Navigator came along. America Online came on with those little CDs they'd mail everybody. And, and you'd still dial up, but you'd dial up, you'd connect to America Online. And America Online would have a, a browser where you could surf some basic web pages. And they would, they would host your email for you. You could dial into their servers 
and check and see if you had any email, et cetera. Uh, when we get to that stage, that's when adoption will really start kicking off because, you know, your grandma and your mom probably didn't have America Online or CopyServe, but, you know, the people that were really enthusiastic did. But that number was larger. It was more than just the fringe at that point in time. You weren't super early to the Internet anymore by the time America Online came around. And when we get to that stage here, we'll still be early, but it'll be really hard to say you're super, you're super early. And we're, we're getting close. There's only a few things that really need to happen. And that could happen a lot faster. You never know when it's going to happen. I do want to remind you, though, the bozos that are running this country, you know, they discounted the Internet. They, they tried to stop voiceover Internet. They tried to stop, um, they tried to stop Internet commerce. Remember, Amazon was only a bookseller at the time. Uh, we had... Uh, People like the New York Times Nobel Prize winning economist saying that by 2020, by 20, by, tw by 2000 or whatever date he said, you know, the famous quote where he said that, that it will be proven that the Internet has been had no more impact on the economy than the fax machine did. And uh, a lot of things have changed. They, they said things like you would never buy airline tickets or you'd never go shopping on the Internet. You know, downloading music was just for thieves, pirating music and things like that. Just the, the same way they say that Bitcoin is only for thieves and money launderers and, you know, sex traffickers and drug users, what have you. Uh, a lot of those things, a lot of those really draw a parallel to where we were in the 1990s uh, as far as the internet was concerned. So even if we're in the early, or early, even if we were at the AOL days and we're in like the late 1990s approaching the dot-com bust, the iPhone wasn't going to come out for another eight years. The world was just unrecognizable from where we are today. And, and that's my point. So it is important to remember while we're here, we're here for the future that Bitcoin's going to build. We're here for the hope that Bitcoin provides, even if you're in a place like the United States where you don't need Bitcoin as much as people do in, in other countries where they might not have a stable, reliable currency. I've already spoken about Adam Meister, why he was one of my inspirations for starting this podcast, because, you know, he used to remind you to zoom out and have that long, long term perspective with his catchphrase, strong hands. Long-term thinking, pound that like button. If you're familiar with Adam Meister, you, you probably almost have heard him say that instead of me. In general, though, most Bitcoiners recommend that you zoom out and keep at least a four-year perspective. I think Adam Meister says, you know, keep that four-year perspective with his 210,000 block theory. Others say things like don't plan on touching your Bitcoin for 10 years. The maximalist perspective, though, is like that Neo Matrix beam where they say, I'm trying to tell you that when the time comes, you won't have to. You won't need to worry about a time when you can sell your Bitcoin because by the time you get to that point, we will have achieved hyper-Bitcoinization and Bitcoin will be the money. All right. I was promising to myself I was going to keep this short and sweet because I still have a lot of things I need to get done today. Um, but I always, I always get carried away because I love talking about Bitcoin so much. And uh, I always... I always take notes and I think, okay, here's my show notes and I have these, these, these things to talk about. And it's not really going to take that long to discuss these three things. And of course, that always makes me remember other things I want to talk about or I expand on those things. And, and by the time I get done with that, you know, here we are over an hour in already. So let's get to the reason why we're here. And why we're here is because today is DCA Wednesday. And DCA is short for dollar cost averaging, which is an investment strategy where you invest your money in equal portions at regular intervals, regardless of price. For example, this is going to be our 135th stack. We chose our equal portion at just $20 because, you know, I've, I wanted to be able to set an example, uh, run an experiment a hypothesis that anybody that's listening to this podcast, regardless of where you work, could relate to. And 
Maybe some of you can afford to DCA a heck of a lot more than $20 a week, but there's plenty of people out there where $20 a week is, it's a lot of money. They might have to decide, you know, whether they're going to put that $20 into their gas tank or buy $20 worth of food. So I wanted to keep it simple. And so I chose $20 as our equal portion. Of course, we chose weekly on Wednesdays as our regular interval. Weekly is a pretty fairly regular interval for, for DCAing. Most people that DCA in any investment strategy usually DCA around their payday, right? Because you don't have money to invest until you get paid often. So uh, if you get paid on Friday, oftentimes maybe Friday is your DCA day. So we chose Wednesday weekly because Wednesday kind of had a ring to it, DCA and Wednesday. Uh, and Wednesday is just a good podcast day because uh, it's midweek. Uh, we've had time for things to have happened and plenty of time for you to listen before the weekend when people go off and do their things. So we chose weekly on Wednesday. And so far we've stacked 134 times, converting a total of 2,680 US dollars into 8,942,329 Satoshis. And we did that at an average cost now of $29,969.82. We bought Kind of between, we started this podcast, I think, between the two cycle highs. So we bought all the way up to the $69,000 all-time high, and then we bought all the way down. So for a while, our average cost basis was a lot higher than $29,000. And then it got lower to, I think, twenty five dollars or $24,000. And now it's going back up as Bitcoin gets more expensive. But still, $29,969.82 is a heck of a lot cheaper than $51,000. Uh, and uh, while that cost basis will go up as the price of Bitcoin goes up, Still not doing too shabby. To make today's purchase as usual, we're going to use the Cash App. Again, this is a you-do-you thing. Choose an app or an exchange that's available where you are and that that you like. Cash App is not the cheapest. They have about a 2.25% fee for purchasing Bitcoin. But for small purchases like $20, we're only going to spend about $0.45 in fees. And because they're going to let us transfer that to our hardware wallet, of course, I'm going to wait till we have closer to a million Satoshis, but because they're going to let us do that without a mining fee, that uh, kind of makes up for a little for the fact that their their fees a little bit higher. But again, this is a you do you thing. I'm going to use Cash App, and I already have Cash App open. I've actually got thirty bucks in Cash App, so I'm going to be able to invest twenty of that immediately. And that's the other thing I like about Cash App. Even if I didn't, they would let me transfer money from my debit card to Cash App and still invest it immediately and still send it to my hardware wallet immediately. Something else, a lot of other apps will not let you do. So I've tapped on Bitcoin, tap buy, enter $20, hit confirm. And boom, just like that, we've purchased another 37,818 sats. Bitcoin got a tiny bit cheaper while I've been talking. It's We purchased at a price of $51,695. And that is going to raise our average, our average cost basis by another $96.50. So our average cost basis now is over $30,000, $30,066.32 to be specific. Still not too shabby considering Bitcoin's worth more than $51,000. Perhaps more importantly, it raised our total stack to 8,980,147 sats. If Bitcoin doesn't go too crazy during the next week, that means we will finally reach that goal of 9 million sats with our next stack, hopefully. And that is really cool. I'm going to wrap things up because this has already gone way over an hour, but I do want to once again thank each and every one of you for listening wherever you may be. Please reach out to me. If you want to send a boost, that's really awesome. I would appreciate that. But just as importantly, consider sending me that DM at BTC Bulletin Pod on Twitter. 
Again, if you're not already following the podcast Twitter account, please do so because by following at BTC Bulletin Pod on Twitter or X, you'll help feed that algorithm monster and help our posts show up in more people's feeds and maybe we'll expose some more people to Bitcoin, hopefully help orange pill more people. Along those lines, if you leave a review for this podcast, if you're listening on Apple Podcasts or whatever podcast platform you're listening to, you have the ability to rate or review the podcast and that helps feed that algorithm monster, which helps you know, this podcast be distributed, help us expose more people to Bitcoin, you know, more widely, it'll show up more people's suggestions. Also, as we mentioned a couple of weeks ago, if you are listening on Apple podcast and you had us set up on automatic downloads, because we don't put out five podcasts a week, uh, those automatic downloads have been removed. So that might be why we are not necessarily showing up in your feed. So if you would kindly re-enable automatic downloads, That'll help you know the minute our podcast is available to listen to, and it'll also help feed that algorithm monster. And if you do nothing else and you don't have Twitter and you don't follow us on Noster, I'd still like to hear from you. So don't forget, you can email me at b at bitcoinbulletin at protail at protonmail.com. That's bitcoinbulletin at protonmail.com. Above all, though, don't forget to join us next Wednesday and every Wednesday while we continue to grow that stack of Satoshis together. And until that time, Keep on stacking those sats, you sexy sat stackers.